Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Do you ever struggle with intimacy with God on one hand and fearing that you are flippant and overly familiar and not reverent enough on the other hand? Maybe you don't. I mean, Mary doesn't. She, she doesn't even think like that, but lots of people do. And, uh, I, I have, uh, for many years flip-flopped between those two issues. And I just wondered whether any of you go through that battle. Um, because we're not talking about two different gods, obviously. That's a silly understatement, but we're also not talking about two different moods that God is in, so that if God is in the high, austere, holy, unapproachable, mysterious mood, then we better come in with our hat in our hand, head bowed to the floor, in fear and trembling, like the tin woodsman in front of the Wizard of Oz. Uh, and then the other mood is the Abba Father loving, caring, arms open, affectionate, welcoming, comforting, emotionally present, close, loving Abba. And, and, and you should not ever have to try to judge between those two. In fact, the first one is an exaggeration. God is never like the Wizard of Oz. He's never uh, making people fear and tremble in front of him. People fear and tremble in front of him because uh, of the, the, the what's going on in their hearts, not what's going on in God's heart. God never is trying to terrify people. Uh, God is God is terrifying. I mean, of course, he, he. I mean, at this point, I'm talking about things that are way beyond our capacity to to really explain. But to say it more simply, the great and terrible God that Nehemiah chapter four refers to. The great and terrible God uh, that you find in Exodus when Pharaoh's army is approaching, and uh, they they encounter the, the the pillar of fire, and for Israel it is uh, warmth and and light, and for Egypt it's darkness and judgment. It's the same fire. That in itself speaks more about our demeanor in approaching God than it speaks of what God's attitude toward us is like. And we're told clearly in Hebrews to come boldly before the throne of grace. We're told in John chapter 14, Jesus says, If you obey me, my Father and I will come and make our home with you. Uh, John chapter 4, the Father seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for one who would, for whom he can show himself strong. Uh, and many, many other scriptures that you all know could probably quote on your own. But am I, am I making any sense when I say, do you ever have times when you're just talking to the Lord, being with him, and you'll get this sensation, maybe a thought, maybe a feeling, maybe the memory of some sermon from somewhere that says, in effect, you better watch out. You're being awful casual with the Lord. You need to be more reverent. Now, the word reverent, I can't stand people to call me reverend. I don't like it. Only Psalm 111, his name is reverent. His name is to be revered, held in reverence. And calling a man reverent to me is so religious and so smacking of something that the New Testament doesn't support that I just don't like it. Forgive me if you're a professional person in ministry who doesn't mind being given the label reverend. That's just something you and I would differ on. Uh, but the other reason I don't like reverend is because it makes a differentiation between those who are in quote so-called full-time ministry and the so-called laity, which clergy laity division is an aberration uh, in the light of the New Testament revelation of the priesthood of the believers. But the other reason I don't like it is because only he is to be revered on that level. And uh, worshiping God does have two different modes, because I don't know any other way to say it. There is a level of worshiping him that is on your face or with your hands raised or with with a certain degree of, of holy awe. I've been in those those kinds of manifestations of the presence of God where every it's it's usually corporate uh, some on rare occasions that has happened to me in in just private times with him but uh usually it's corporate where me and whoever I'm in the room with whether it's a handful of people or hundreds of people are all in awe of that presence and uh uh it's certainly right in fact almost unavoidable if your heart's awake, to tremble in the presence of the Lord. But then, I just can't live if I can't talk to him like my children talk to me. If I can't come to him in the privacy of the intimacy of just him and me and just tell him what I'm feeling I don't know how I would live. And uh, I don't think we need to try to find a, a balance between those two. I think when you start getting too introspective about that balance, you will either get sucked into legalism on one hand in the awesome, fearsome presence end of it, 
Or you may get flippant and irresponsible and disrespectful by going way too far in the other. And if you start trying to keep it balanced by by, by consciously focusing on one end of that or the other, I think it's a problem. Well, the reason I bring all that up is... You know, we're entering the Thanksgiving season, and you know, I tell you every year, I'm not good at doing uh, special messages that relate to the season, but because, I mean, Thanksgiving, we should live in Thanksgiving. There should always be a, a thankful heart in us, but I don't want to talk about having a thankful heart, even though it's Thanksgiving season. I want to talk about something that's kin to that. And that is having an honest heart. Because I don't know if our thankful heart is really worth a whole lot if we're not also being honest to God about what we really feel or think, especially if we are hurt or frightened or angry or in some kind of negative struggle. And I want to start just to give us a place to, to start, I could start lots of places, but I want to start in the book of Job. I wish we had time to just do a study on the whole book of Job. I find that a daunting task when all I only get to talk to you once a month. Um, maybe I could do it in a series, and if you're interested, you could obtain the whole series. Uh, it would take several hours to do it justice, but I Rather than do that, let me just start here. In Job chapter 8, I'm assuming that you know the story of Job. For any of you who may uh, just be getting started in studying your Bible and you're just learning, Job uh, is is, uh, a man who is not a Jew. Job is probably the oldest book in the Old Covenant Uh, Some researchers say that Job was brought by Israel out of Egypt. So it precedes Joseph in its history. That that makes it the oldest book uh, in the the canon of uh, the scriptures. And Job, therefore, was not a Jew. He was a, 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 a Gentile. He was a a man who knew and loved and honored God. It's obvious throughout the book. That's one reason why I'd like to do a a, a complete study of it. Because Job is in the scriptures, among other things, to teach us some things about this very issue. What is it God really wants from you? Does he really want fear and trembling in worship? Well, in the right context, yes, not because God's ego needs to be uh, supported by being reminded that he's awesome and terrifying. That's not it at all. There's just something in us that needs to, to fear and tremble in the right context. But, but God's ultimate desire, doesn't matter if you're studying the, the, the Hebrew scriptures or the, the New Covenant scriptures, God's ultimate desire is to be loved and to love. God's ultimate desire 
is to be loved and to love. In other words, God doesn't need your love because he's insecure or, or lonely. But, but yet God desires you and he wants you to desire him and he wants you to understand that the, the, the whole motive for him coming after you, which he did, you didn't seek him, he sought you. And the whole motive for that was for ever deepening intimacy and relationship. There's a whole lot more going on in Job than just that. I know that. And so I want us to look at this from, from that standpoint. Job has been devastated because the powers of darkness have come to God and confronted God, for lack of a better way of saying it. They've, they've challenged God that Job is only motivated to honor God because God protects him and blesses him. And if you'll read the text, which we won't take time to, but you'll notice it wasn't the devil that approached God about Job. It was God who brought the devil, uh, uh, brought Satan uh, to focus his attention on Job. So why would God do that? Well, that's part of the whole unfolding of the story. I can't go into it here like I want, but I'll just say this much. If God is the one who initiated this wager, for lack of a better word, if God is the one who initiated this confrontation, if God is the one who made Job a battlefield between him and Satan over the question of whether humans can relate to God out of intimacy and love and relationship rather than out of just what they can get out of God, then that's a pretty high-ranking issue in the spiritual warfare that goes on in the universe. And because this is the oldest book in the, in the scriptures, it's a very early issue in the mind of God. So from the very get-go, for the very earliest days of God's dealing was with man, God is motivated to set in motion circumstances whereby it is possible for a free human being to choose God even when there is nothing happening to attract him to God except God himself. Does that make sense? And so Job's comforters have been attacking Job for ha having secret sin in his life. This is happening to you, Job, because you've got things that are wrong in you and you, you're not telling the truth. And Job comes back at him and stands his ground. And that's what's going on in these two, two chapters that I want to quote to you from Job chapter 8, and then the next one, Job chapter 13. Job chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, Then answered Bildad the, Shua, the Shuhite, and he said, How long will you keep saying th these things that you're saying, Job? How long will you be just a windbag of self-justification? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty do unrighteously? 
If your children have sinned, now get this, see how comforting this is. Job's children have been killed in the midst of all this. And uh, uh, Bildad says, if your children have sinned against God, then he has delivered them into the power of their transgression. Isn't that comforting? If you seek God diligently and make your supplication to the Almighty, then if you are pure and upright, surely God will stir himself into action on your behalf and make your righteous dwelling prosper again. So Job, you know, if your kids are killed because God's mad at you. Because God kills people's kids when he's mad at them. And uh, that's just the law of the spirit of of the, the 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 spirit world. You do right, God blesses. You do wrong, God curses. Uh, so your kids are dead. That's because you are cursed. Get right and admit you're evil, and God may stir Himself. Notice He says He has to stir Himself uh, to to take action on your behalf and put your life back in somewhat some degree of order. This kind of stuff goes on chapter after chapter. Job responds in Job 13, verses 1 through 6. Now, in in this translation that I'm reading, you won't hear a phrase that is really well known in the King James Version. It's a, it's a phrase that people quote, Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Now, I want you to I want you to hear this particular translation. I think I'm, I think I'm reading this out of the, uh, maybe the NIV. It's a more modern translation, so it doesn't have some of the King James poetry in it that we tend, you know, I love King James poetry and it's placed, but I can't stand it when it obscures the meaning of the text. Uh, when it, when, when we get so into, uh, bees and vows and Buddhists and Kuddhists and all that kind of jibber jabber language, it just goes all over me. Because if it obscures the meaning, then who cares how pretty it is if it's keeping us from the truth? Anyway, he says, look, Job says, look, I have seen many instances such as you describe. I understand what you're saying. I know as much as you do. I'm not stupid. Oh, how I long to speak directly to the Almighty. I want to talk this over with God himself. For you are misinterpreting this whole thing. Must you go on speaking for God when he never once has said the things that you are putting in his mouth? How did Job know that God never said any of the things his friends were putting in God's mouth? He had no Torah. He had no Bible. He had no text to turn to. He had no Bible commentaries. How did he know any of these things. Well, I guess it's the same way he knew things, other things that he couldn't have read out of a text. Like, I know that my Redeemer lives. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh, one day I will stand upon the earth and see God with my own eyes. How did he know that? Among many other things. Here's how, and I, I don't want to digress here, but I, I need to take a little side 
step just for a moment to make this make sense. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5 verse 39, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life and they point to me and you will not come to me that you might have life. It's possible to search the scriptures and miss the reality the scriptures point to. Jesus also said in John chapter 6 verse 63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Paul makes reference to the letter of the law that kills versus the spirit that brings revelation. We need the word of God. We need the spirit of God. But of the two, the spirit, the Holy Spirit is the only hope for us understanding the word. In fact, I don't like the way I just made a, a declension between word and spirit. Because if you'll notice, when you speak a word, air comes out of your mouth. That's by design. You're made in God's image and likeness. The spirit that comes out of your mouth when you speak a word is meant to point out the fact that the living word of God is the living spirit of God. And uh, you can take the, 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 the living word, write it down in a text, making it a, a, an accurate recording of, of, the, of the word. But if the Holy Spirit is not breathing through that, that dead letter can become a source of destruction and confusion and uh, every bad thing. And, and you don't need me to tell you that. Every one of us knows that. Just look around at the travesty of religion, especially Christianity. Look at the, 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 the horrible misinterpretations. Well, my, my reason for saying that is I'm a, we're about to come upon one of those misinterpretations. It's in this same text where, where Job says to his friends, he says, look, he said, uh, these tremendous statements that you keep making about God, he said, doesn't his majesty strike terror into your heart? Wouldn't, don't, shouldn't you be afraid to make such arrogant statements in God's name? Because you're saying things God never said, and I know he never said it. How does he know? Evidently because Job has a relationship with God. Uh, I hear some of you make, will say, say well, no, 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 well, that was Job. That was Job. Uh, but we, we have the Bible. Yes, we have the Bible. I'm reading about Job out of the Bible. But have you ever been around people who have the Bible, but you can't, you can't find hardly a shred of the love of God in them? You can't find any grace, any patience, any wisdom, any, any love, any humility. But boy, you can sure find anger and judgment and revenge and even violence. But boy, they can quote scripture right and left. I know you know what I'm talking about. And so 
the quotation that you hear so often from Job 13 is, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And I don't want to be disrespectful to many, many wonderful godly people who over my lifetime I've heard quote that verse and they quoted it with a right heart and they quoted it in a right context to some degree. But at the same time that's true. I've also heard it quoted maybe almost as often with a, 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 a an, a, an idea of even if God kills me, I'm going to trust him because I figure God will kill me because that's probably really more like what he's like. Well, you, you kind of have a, a bit of that here in Job in this, in this text. Let me go on and finish reading this particular translation of it. See if you can pick out the phrase that is normally translated in the King James Version, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job goes on to say, he says, doesn't his majesty strike terror in your heart when you talk like you are? How can you do this thing? This tremendous statement you've made about, uh, about what God is really like is just ashes to me. Now be silent and let me alone so I can speak. And I will face the consequences. Yes, I will take my life in my hand and say what I really think. God may kill me for saying this. In fact, I expect him to. Nevertheless, I'm going to argue my case with him. This at least will be in my favor that I'm not godless to be rejected instantly from his presence. At least I can hold my case before him, talk to him face to face, and expect him to answer. Where is Job getting this, what is in the eyes of his so-called friends, this unmitigated arrogance that he's going to not only talk to God face to face, he's going to plead his case before God and actually not plead his case, but argue his case. And Job says, if it kills me, I will bear the consequences. I would rather die and be honest before God and say what's really going on inside of me than put up some fake religiosity that God knows and I know is a bunch of baloney. And if it seems ungodly and it seems arrogant and it seems irreverent, I I can't help that. I I can't bear so-called reverence that is denying me my ability to to be truthful. And, and regardless of what your point of view is about this, here's what God says about it. In Job chapter 42 verse 7, you know, uh, he, God turns to Job's friends and he says in this verse, 42 7, you have not been right in what you have said about me as my servant Job has. This may be one of the most important verses in the entire text of Scripture. It makes it irrefutably clear that the idea of Job's friends 
that God never lets bad things happen to good people and that if you are good, good things will happen and if you are bad, bad things will happen. And yet, as clear as this is that God is refuting, it is the normal, continuous, common mindset of the majority of religious people in the world. Which just shows the battle that we're always in, because if this gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, to whom the God of this world has blinded the eyes of people from hearing and seeing the truth. And that doesn't just mean lost people who are just out in the total dark. There's spiritual blindness among people who claim to know the Lord. Evidently, if you read the whole text and you get a, a, a grasp of what's going on here, uh, you begin to understand that God's desire is for intimacy and relationship with Job. And Job has pressed into God and obtained that, that relationship with God. You gotta remember this. Job doesn't know anything except what the Spirit of God has taught him. The Spirit of God will never teach any man or woman anything different from what is eventually revealed in the scriptures. But there are no scriptures yet for Job to refer to. He has come to know God by pursuing God as the Spirit of God has drawn him to God. And I'll tell you something. We are so idolatrous of our intellect and our Bible knowledge that we, some people may even get nervous at what I'm saying right here. But I won't pursue that. How can we come into the presence of the Lord and be properly respectful of the holiness of of the one we are approaching and at the same time crawl up in his arms and snuggle. I don't think you have to choose between one versus the other. Uh, I, I like to use this imagery. Uh, you probably, some of you have probably heard me say it before, but imagine that you are the, the son or daughter of the emperor. And the, the 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 ruling emperor is in his court, and all of the rulers and all the uh, people are gathered in that throne room, and the proper respect is being given, and you give that proper respect along with everybody else. You don't stand there arrogantly and say, "I don't have to bow like all of the rest of you. I've got connections. I'm, I've got." I've got intimacy that uh, you don't have. No, you don't do that. You give proper honor and praise and obeisance and worship along with everybody else. But behind closed doors, when the court's not in session and it's just you and your papa, you you cr- you crawl up in his arms. In fact, the scriptures even say you can crawl up in his arms even in the throne room. You get my point. Uh, you know, the, it, there's this, uh, uh, people who knew the, the Stal- Stalinist regime and the evil of the Stalinist regime. One of the things they report about Stalin whenever he would come into the 
gathering of uh, the the government of Russia, <clears throat> and uh, they would all be clapping for Stalin, and they'd clap and clap and clap. They clap for as many as forty five minutes nonstop, not because they loved Stalin, but because nobody wanted to be the first one to stop clapping unless lest the KGB take note that you stopped before anybody else did and come and kill you in the night. I just wonder sometimes if some people clap for God, worship God, put on their best behavior of worship. Now, I know I have no right to judge anybody's worship. That's only known between them and God. But I'm just speaking from my own experience with myself. Are there times when you can offer up to God praise and thanksgiving and worship but really what's motivating it is like you're you're clapping for Stalin you 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 don't want to stop lest god think ill of you uh, or lest you think ill of god and god sees that you're thinking ill of him you know so you just no listen uh, a wrong-headed fear of god produces clichés and cliches easily degenerate into religious falsehoods. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. People can say that, but they haven't bothered to study the context of it. They may not be saying it with near the reality and uh, necessary honesty that Job originally said it. Though he slay me. Yet I'm going to pursue him, and I'm, I so much trust his character that even if he slays me, I'm willing. I'd, I'd rather be dead, and know that I made my case before God in honesty. At least, I, at least they'll they'll know that he's not godless. He's not godless. He has a he has a relationship with God. And uh, if God kills me, that would be better than living like I'm living right now, not knowing and not 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 being able to understand why God's allowed all this to happen to me. I expect God to answer me. By the time you get over to Job chapters 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, where it, if you read it in the typical American mindset of uh, thinking that every book that you read should have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and at the end, all the questions you had at the beginning should all be answered and neatly packaged up in a bow and brought to a conclusion, then you'll you'll not understand what's happening with Job here. What's happening with Job is God is revealing to Job the magnificence of God's wisdom and power but if you if you are not careful, you'll read it thinking God is just being a bully. God is just saying, hey, Job, look at this. I bet you can't do this, can you, you little worm? Hey, Job, you little stupid fool, let me show you some more razzle-dazzle things you can't do. And Job finally is so beaten down by the awesomeness of this God that like a little worm crawling un- out from under a rock, he lays there defeated and beaten by God's punishing words and says, I, I repent in dust and ashes. That is not anything like what's going on here. And only the devil would interpret it for you that way. Or maybe you don't need the devil. Maybe you're so mad at your father for being a bully that when you read verses like those, you just assume 
that God is no different than your alcoholic father who bullied you or the mean teacher at school who bullied you or the bully in school yard, the schoolyard that bullied you, whoever it is you're mad at. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't have much of a chance to get through to you what's really going on here. But if the Holy Spirit shows you what's really going on here, you will never have it taken away from you by anybody. No devil, no human, not even your own sliding back into old patterns of, of, of wrong thinking will ever be able to steal from you the revelation of what's really going on. Once the Spirit, through the Word, communicates the heart of God. When you are reading your scriptures, the Holy Spirit, you need to ask the Holy Spirit always to interpret the scriptures for you. Because if you think it's just a matter of gaining information by reading, no wonder you're bored with your Bible and no wonder you doubt the uh, meaning and purpose of the scriptures and uh, uh, no wonder you're left with all kind of problems uh, where the scriptures are concerned. Instead of an adventure with the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, you're just rereading stuff you've read before and you're tired of reading it or you just don't even bother to read it because it's all old hat, you've heard it before. Because all you get out of it is what you put into it, which is your own thimble full of, of understanding, not trusting the Holy Spirit to bring you the revelation. Uh, the, the, uh, the Spirit reveals to Job in this encounter with God, the greatness of God. And Job says to God, I've heard of you with the hearing of my ears in conversation with other people who tell what they think God is like. Job says, I've, I've heard of you, but now my own eyes have seen you and I repent in dust and ashes. He's not repenting for telling God he wants a face-to-face -face encounter. Because that makes no sense. It, it makes no sense. If God is telling Job's friends that uh, you're, you didn't say about me what, what's right. You spoke wrong about me. You haven't said what's right as Job did. Job spoke the truth about me. When, well, what did Job say that was true? Job said, God is not like this. God does not go around just punishing people because they did wrong and only blessing people who did right. That's not what this is about. I don't know fully what it's all about, but I know what I do know because what I do know I learned from my intimate relationship with God to what degree I do know of him. And I can tell you with my mouth, even if I'm taking my life in my hands to say it, what you're saying about God is a lie. And it seems to me like if you really knew God, you would be afraid to make such arrogant statements of such confidence about God's character when I know what you're saying is opposite of the truth. And God applauds Job. God is saying, in effect, here, the best I could paraphrase it, you're saying that I am a simplistic legalist who just punishes people helter-skelter for whatever they've done wrong and only the people that do what, what I like get blessed. Well, that's not true of me at all. I bless everybody. 
I cause it to rain on the just and the unjust. I pour out my blessings on everybody. I'm kind to everybody. When Jesus comes to earth to reveal himself in human form to human beings, and he's talking about him, uh, the Father who, Jesus, of course, if you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. And he says, my, in, in Luke chapter six, and he says, my Father is kind to, even to the wicked. He's, he's kind and gentle, even to the, the arrogant. See, David said in Psalm 18, he said to the, to the, to the hard-hearted, God appears to be hard-hearted. God only appears to be hard-hearted because your heart is hard and you interpret God out of the hardness of your own heart. So, Anything we read in scripture that accuses God is because we are not getting the point of the story accurately. And instead of that making us slam our Bible and walk away from it, it should invite us to press in and say, I don't understand this story. I don't understand what's going on here. But even when I don't understand, I trust you because the ultimate revelation of you is Jesus. And Jesus told me to come and and take his yoke upon me and learn from him because he's gentle and, and loving and lowly in heart and I will find rest for my soul. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm coming and I'm asking... Holy Spirit, show me what's really going on here. Show me what's really happening in these verses that make me want to run away from God instead of run to Him. Now, I've said it in the early stages of this message, and I want to say it again to keep it as the main focus of our time together. What God ultimately wants from you is not shaking and fear and trembling because first john tells us in chapter three that chapter four perfect love casts out all fear god wants you to be perfect in love he wants you perfected in love he wants you to know his love for you is perfect and he wants you to be able to come to know him and love him perfectly and for that perfect love to flow through you to other people that's what the whole thing's about. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the purpose of our instruction is love out of a pure heart. The purpose of our instruction ultimately is love out of a pure heart. Perfect love casts out all fear. Whatever is happening in your life, no matter how bad it seems, God has allowed it or even engineered it. He doesn't engineer everything for heaven's sakes, but sometimes we engineer it and God steps back and lets us make terrible messes. But he rescues us out of those messes. But the reason he allows all that he allows is ultimately that perfect love be manifested to us and through us so that we know his love for us is perfect and we love him back perfectly. Now, you have similar conflicts going on in a few other places that I would like to just mention. One is Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk is watching the 
Babylonian army stomping its way toward Judah to destroy it. Habakkuk says, I went up into my tower and made my case before God. Now here again, there's a very famous verse that is taken from this story. And it's a verse that's totally misinterpreted. How many times have you ever heard anybody quote Habakkuk chapter 1? And usually it's in, they quote it in King James English. Thou art of purer eyes to behold evil. And I know, again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to the beauty of the King James, but once again, when you say something in King James English, you can put a spin on it that takes it a completely different direction than what the meaning of the of the statement was. And I've heard people that I love and respect and, and get a lot from their ministry, but I've heard them quote that verse and, and quote that verse over and over, and people say, God is so too holy to look upon evil. Based on that verse, I got a question. It's just another logical question that religion keeps us from asking. If God is too holy to look upon evil, where then does God ever look? And, and uh, along with that is this question. The Bible also says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. The Bible also says that uh, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, Nothing is hidden from his eyes. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. So what do we have here? Well, here's what we got. We got somebody taking a poetic statement from Habakkuk chapter 1 and forgetting all the other verses of the Bible that contradict this statement. And we end up with a Bible doctrine that says that God is so holy that he will not look upon evil and so on the cross, Jesus is dying, bearing our sins, and God has to turn away from looking at his son because on the cross, Jesus becomes evil, and God has to turn away. And that's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, there's no doubt that Jesus is bearing on the cross the darkness and wickedness and brokenness and suffering and sorrow of the whole world. That's not in question. But it is not Biblical, I don't believe, to say that at that moment the Father was too holy to look upon the Son. You've got a real Trinitary, Trinitarian problem, if that's what you believe there. You've got a rift in the Godhead that uh, can't be supported by Scripture or, or logic. And I won't get into that. That's too too much to try to unpack here. But what was Jesus saying? Uh, even though he was certainly bearing and suffering, untold suffering uh, in that moment, he was also quoting Psalm 22 and communicating to his loved ones Psalm 22. If you read all of Psalm 22, you'll get the point. The entire revelation of the purpose of the cross is in that entire psalm. Not just the first verse. And so uh, another problem that you have if you believe that God can't look on, on evil is 
You think the devil won't be right there with his Bible open quoting to you as you go in to pray about the besetting sin that you're so so sorry for and that you keep falling into and keep having this struggle in your flesh? You don't think the devil is not there with his backward collar on and his Bible open and his preaching finger stuck up in the air? He'll, see, if you don't hear the Holy Spirit talking to you through the Scriptures, you can sure hear another spirit talking to you through the Scriptures. Don't think the devil won't quote Scripture to you and turn what should have been spirit and life <clears throat> into dead letter and legalism. And the letter, Paul tells us, the letter of the law kills the law spoken in mere letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's why I'm telling you, when you hit stuff that you don't understand in the Scriptures, and, and it upsets you, and it makes you wonder, and it makes you question the goodness of God or the character of God, don't run away from that verse, and thereby running away from God, but run to the verse and run to the Lord and say, please, Father, let your Holy Spirit teach me out of this conflict I'm in. Let it become a rich source of revelation for me and not not a place uh, that, that daunts me, but a place that uh, helps me grow farther up and further into intimacy and closeness with you because I come into a greater understanding. Every time you hit something that makes you feel like, I don't understand this and it's really causing me trouble. If you will press into God and ask for him, it may not come immediately. It may come out of uh, left field from a source you never would have thought. But he will answer that eventually and you will grow by leaps and bounds. Oh, in that very thing that you thought had stunted your growth, you find that it's uh, started your growth uh, uh, in a whole fresh new way. Now, uh, there's there's another place uh, where this conflict is found. And that's in Psalm 73 from Asaph. I've covered this in other studies but here in the face of thanksgiving, I really want to try to bring home to you, yes, let's be thankful. Being thankful to God is easy for me. I wake up in the morning, I'm thankful for his presence. I'm thankful for the woman lying next to me who I adore. I'm thankful for my children and my grandchildren. I'm thankful for blue sky and birds and the smell of cut, uh, fresh cut grass. And I'm thankful for cornbread and black eyed peas. And I'm thankful for all kinds of things. It's not hard to give thanks to God. You know why? It became much, much easier for me to give thanks to God after I had gone through what Asaph went through here in Psalm 73. I went through this similar experience to Asaph. After I had, I confronted struggles I could not find the answer to. And just as Asaph says in, in this chapter, please read the whole chapter. Asaph, Asaph came up under King David and was trained in worship leading as a young man. He came into his own as an adult. Uh, and became the choir master under Solomon. I mean, you couldn't have a more heady, 
time of Jewish uh, exuberance and confidence and hope uh, as uh, Solomon seems to be the Mashiach, the king. He seems to be the hope of Israel and Israel, the glory of, of Israel is filling the whole earth. But just about the time it seems to be everything that a young a young Hebrew patriot could dream of. It takes a turn. And darkness begins to pour into the court. And then darkness pours into the government. And then darkness pours into the culture. And Asaph, who is a worshiper of Yahweh, who loves and adores the beauty of holiness, is overwhelmed with the influx of occultism, immorality, foreign gods, uh, political intrigues. Some uh, some uh, commentators even suggest that the Zechariah uh, that is mentioned in other places in this time of history was actually Asaph's brother, Zechariah, who was murdered for political reasons by Solomon's henchmen and uh, therefore that Solomon was was behind it. And uh, Asaph's hero worship collapses into utter despair. And this is where Psalm 73 came from. And in the midst of it, I'm so thankful this is in the Bible. Some people say, you can't talk to God like that. Well, that's blasphemy. No, I think I think when you're talking to God like Job did, like Habakkuk did, like Asaph does in Psalm 73, you're in a purer realm of faith than ever before because you're not faking it. You're not saying religious gobbledygook. You're not clapping for Stalin. Uh, you're not trying to placate uh, uh, a God who doesn't exist. You're talking out of your real heart to the God who is really there. You can't get in more real faith than when the real you is talking to the real God with, with, with no fakery. Instead of Isaiah saying, look, uh, without were, you know, you're, you're talking to me uh, with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10. Who is he who's walking in great darkness, who has no shining splendor in his heart, but yet he still trusts me? Let him know that I am upholding him. God wants you to know that he's with you in those times when you feel like he's not there and you wonder where he is and you cannot help it. You're crying out to him, uh, not in some fake religious fear that you're going to get struck by lightning for saying something negative to God, but in faith like a trusting child who's crying out for his daddy in the dark and doesn't understand why his dad's not showing up. And so he cries all the more. I remember so well when I was a young, young guy struggling through the darkest days. I know y'all hear me say that. I had a lot of dark days. I had a lot of dark days. And uh, I just, I, I did one of those things that God doesn't let me get away with now, but in, in the early days, he let me get away with just reaching up and grabbing a book off the shelf, flipping it open, and putting my finger down and reading it. And I didn't just do that with the Bible. 
uh, I, I did it in this particular time. I did it with screw tape letters. It just flopped open. I, it was dark and I couldn't figure out where God was. And I flipped it open to where screw tape is talking to Wormwood. And Wormwood is celebrating the fact that he's made the Christian that he's uh, assigned to destroy lose all confidence in the, pr- in the presence and love of God. And screw tape writes back to him and says, I commend you for this only to a certain degree. You may have done a good thing, but you may have done a bad thing. For there is never a time when our cause is in more danger than when a Christian walking through darkness wonders why he has been abandoned, looks about and feels as if the universe is empty and he's all alone. And still, he obeys. I I really hesitate to make, I think it would be a a presumption on my part to to try to give you some kind of example of of how how to do this. I mean, that's, that's, I'm not qualified to do that. Only you and God know what it is in you that is angry, that that you suppress, that you keep a lid on, that you will not let yourself say out loud. You're mad about it. You, to be honest, you're mad at God about it. And so you won't let yourself be mad because you're mad at God, as if God doesn't know. I always make reference to Lieutenant Dan in in uh, Forrest Gump, if, if any if any have seen Forrest Gump, uh, where L- Lieutenant Dan is up in the crow's nest in the hurricane, and he's shaking his fist at the heavens and yelling and screaming, and the next scene, Lieutenant Dan is quiet and peaceful and asks Forrest's forgiveness for not being grateful to him for saving his life, and then he falls back in the water and and uh, gently floats himself out in, in the water doing backstrokes. And Forrest says, I think during the storm, Lieutenant Dan made his peace with God. Now, whether the writers knew what they were talking about when they put that scene in, I don't know. But it was sure right on. It was absolutely solid, true to life. But until he could express what was in him in darkness and anger and frustration and unbelief and pain, all his religious stuff was a band-aid on top of a volcano. God's not interested in the band-aid. He wants you to express the volcano. Well, this is too heavy to start trying to tell people how to do it. Asaph says there in Psalm 73 something that I find so precious. I've held on to it for years. When I was full of hard questions, I was like a brute beast. Asaph was like an animal raging. And I've been there too. And he said, when I was full of hard questions, I was like a brute beast. Yet you never left me. You held me with your right hand. You guided me with your wisdom, and you will bring me home to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire beside you. 
my heart and my flesh, they fail. But you are the strength of my heart and my inheritance forever. Father, I lift up to you every man and woman listening to my voice, especially those who may be sitting on top of a volcano of unexpressed anger and frustration and pain and keeping it all held down with a veneer of shallow religious talk. I pray, Father, that by your grace you will lance the boil, let the corruption come up and out so you can pour in the healing oil in whatever way that needs to happen for each individual because you you don't treat us like a a blob of humanity you you are with us individually that's the whole point of this asaph was able to turn his struggle into something multiplied millions of believers could draw from but when it was originally in happening it, it was you loving Asaph, you loving Habakkuk, and you loving Job. It was not you just using them as literary instruments for a larger purpose. Thank you, Lord, that you don't use us like tools. You deal with us like like children, your children. I pray that every one of us will let you in to our own personal private pain where we will encounter you on a level so real that when we emerge on the other side, we will find thanksgiving and gratitude now is as real as our complaint and our anger and our tears were. Where before, when we were faking it, and covering ourselves with our religious band-aids, our thanksgiving and praise was as shallow and unreal as our uh, understanding of what's going on was. Thank you, Lord, that just as the, the, the band-aid comes off and the deep stuff gets brought into the light, then the band-aid is no longer a band-aid. It becomes real praise, real worship, real gratitude, We are no longer near you with our lips, but far from you in our hearts. But we are both near in our hearts and with our lips. Then we can truly bring the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, which comes from a heart that is so trusting you that we can even trust you with our lament, our pain, our complaint our questions, and our sorrow. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, in His name, Amen.